Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter topic, Treating Youth and Young Adults with HIV Infection. Our guest today is That Issue's author, Dr. Alice Nagu, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from AbbVie Incorporated, Merkin Company, and VIIV Healthcare Company. Learning objectives for this audio program include describe the HIV epidemic among adolescents and young adults in the U.S., recognize the management challenges in caring for HIV-infected adolescents and young adults, including engagement, treatment, and retention, and discuss emerging data on the clinical implications of HIV infection in adolescents and young adults. Dr. Agu has indicated that she has received grant funding from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, as well as the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. She has further indicated that her presentation today will not include any reference to unlabeled or unapproved uses of drugs or devices. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Agu, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Adolescents and young adults, now those would be individuals between 12 and 24 years of age. And here, unlike in other populations, the incidence of HIV infection has actually been increasing. Your newsletter issue reviewed some of the key publications describing the management challenges clinicians face in treating these younger patients. What I'd like us to do today is discuss how some of that information can translate into clinical practice change. So if you would, doctor, start us out by describing a patient. Sure. A 17-year-old female who presents the emergency department in Baltimore for evaluation of vaginal discharge. She is sexually active with males and usually uses condoms, and I put usually in quotation marks. And she has three lifetime partners and one partner for the past six months who she's faithful to. She undergoes testing and empiric treatment for sexually transmitted infections. However, she declines testing for HIV as she does not feel she is at risk. So she does not feel that she's at risk, the 17-year-old. Do you agree with her? So I don't. I think a problem with young people is often that they are often incorrect about their risk perception, and she definitely is, in that given she's in Baltimore, which is a locale where the prevalence of HIV is definitely greater than 1%, that in itself puts her at increased risk of acquisition of HIV. She has had multiple sex partners and does not always use condoms. You know, the fact that she reports usually using condoms definitely means she does not always use condoms. There's an overestimation of her condom use more than likely. And again, youth often underestimate their risk perception. And while she may be faithful to her current partner, however, that increases the likelihood of her not using condoms with that partner. And we actually don't know what her partner's risk factors and risk behaviors are. Additionally, in the setting of her having a sexually transmitted infection or an STI, her risk of HIV acquisition is even higher as it sort of breaks down the sort of normal barriers to, to infection acquisition and is definitely known to increase the risk of HIV acquisition. As you've described, she's declined testing for HIV. What are the recommendations for testing youth and young adults? That's a good question. This is the group, you know, youth and young adults, where significant increases have been seen in incidence of infection. And there's an estimated 60% of youth are unaware of their status. So infected youth unaware of their status. And so universal HIV testing for youth and young adults above the age of 15 is what's recommended by the U.S. Preventive Task Force. The Centers for Disease Control recommends universal opt-out testing for youth 13 and above. And definitely HIV screening is recommended for patients in all healthcare settings after the patient is notified that testing will be performed unless the patient declines. Again, this is opt-out screening. 
And persons at high risk for HIV infection should be screened for HIV at least annually and more frequently depending on risk. For example, this young woman, if she had been tested earlier in the year, coming back in the setting of an STI would definitely prompt additional testing due to the possibility of additional exposure. So, doctor, you're recommending testing for this young woman. Now, let me ask you, would your recommendation for testing be different if this was a 17-year-old male who reported only having sex with females? So that's the question I get a lot, actually. How do I risk stratify depending on gender, depending on HIV acquisition risk? So if this was a, a male who reported only having sex with females, so a heterosexual male, the testing recommendations actually would not change. While heterosexual males only make up around 10% of those with HIV infection, they still are at risk. And I should say males that are youth with HIV infection, they're still at risk. Depending on how the question is asked, comfort level, concern for stigma, individuals may actually not report other activities that may increase their risk of HIV acquisition. For example, a male may come in and report that he's heterosexual when he actually may have sex with males and females. He may underreport his use of condoms, et cetera, et cetera. So taking the stance that universal testing is recommended, the recommendation actually does not change. To continue along those lines, if this was a 17-year-old male who reported having sex with other males, MSM, would the recommendation for testing change? So the recommendations remain the same. Now, I think the thing that underscores the importance of tests in a male who reports having sex with men is that risk of HIV acquisition is even higher in that demographic. From 2006 to 2009, we know young men who have sex with males between the ages of 13 and 24 had the greatest percentage increase in diagnosed HIV infections of all groups. And the recommendation would definitely be for testing now and then guidance for continued routine testing as well as strong counseling for all, regardless of gender, sexual orientation, on risk reduction, condoms, pre-exposure prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis. But the recommendations, again, are the same, but even enhanced in that demographic, given the, the highest incidence of infection. Well, thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Allison Agu from Johns Hopkins in just a moment. Hello, I'm Jeannie Curley, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm one of the program directors of eHIV Review. If you found us on iTunes or on the web, please be sure to subscribe. This podcast is part of Johns Hopkins eHIV Review, an educational program providing monthly activities certified for CME credit and nursing contact hours with expert commentary and useful practice information for clinicians treating patients with HIV. By subscribing, you'll receive eHIV literature review newsletters and practice-based podcasts like this one directly through your email. There are no fees to subscribe or to receive continuing education credit for these activities. For more information or to subscribe to receive our newsletters and podcasts without charge, please visit www.ehivreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Allison Agu from the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And our topic is treating youth and young adults with HIV infection. Dr. Agu has been explaining how some of the information presented in her newsletter issue can be applied in clinical practice. So to continue, doctor, let me ask you to bring us another patient now, if you would, please. So the next patient is a 21-year-old male who was diagnosed with HIV infection at the health department. He reports initially that his last negative test was six months ago. He's had eight lifetime male partners, 
and engages in both receptive and insertive anal intercourse, otherwise known as being versatile. He's given his test results and referred to care at a local HIV clinic. Eight months later, he's seen at the clinic where his CD4 count is 375 cells per millimeter cube and his viral load is somewhat elevated at 400,000 copies per ml. He has no health insurance as he is quote-unquote never sick. He spends most nights at different friends' houses. He's currently unemployed but is looking for a job currently. Upon receiving his results, he is adamant that he wants to start HIV medicine today. This is a very common scenario of kids that we see. Young adult males who report MSM activity, uh, what can you tell us about the epidemiology of HIV infection among this group? So about two-thirds of infections among youth or young adults are occurring in young MSM, and this has really been the same for many years. And it's different from the adult demographic where MSM make up a significant component, but injection drug use contributes a higher component of males who are HIV-infected. The highest among those young men who have sex with men are among racial and ethnic minorities. And there are many studies trying to determine why that is, whether it's stigma, it's community acceptance, rejection, et cetera. There are multiple reasons why it is possibly that is. Black young men who have sex with men, while approximately 15% of 13 to 24-year-olds in the U.S. are black, nearly two-thirds of all young MSM with HIV infection in that age group are black or African-American then followed by white, 18%, and Hispanic, Latino, about 16%. Black and young MSM also experienced the largest increase of all racial and ethnic minorities of new HIV infections diagnosed in that period of time. So it's a real epidemic, and pockets of these young men are at most risk. This individual you described for us, he got his diagnosis, he waited eight months to go to clinic, and now he's adamant about wanting treatment right away. Why do you think he waited those eight months? This is also a question I get asked a lot, and I think it really is multifactorial. An estimated 40% of youth who are infected engage in care. So meaning about 60% of youth who are infected don't engage in care. So whether they're unaware of the diagnosis or what have you, they are not in care. And reasons for the low engagement rate may be related to a number of factors, and some are highlighted by this case here. So one, lack of knowledge of infection status, which is not the case with this young man, but in one of the articles that I reviewed, a high percentage of HIV-infected men who have sex with men do not know they are infected, especially, again, young men of color. This is particularly concerning as those who do not know they are infected might be less likely to take measures to keep from spreading the virus to others. And disclosure has definitely been linked to decreased transmission risk behaviors. So very important to know that you're infected and many do not. I think this fear of the unknown. So it's this coping strategy to sort of just not quote unquote deal because you're afraid of what it may mean to actually present to care and to start on therapy, et cetera. There's also a lot of stigma about sexual orientation and then also stigma about HIV status for particularly young men who have sex with men who are just either coming out or have not come out. There's a fear that walking into a setting where they are now going to be judged for their orientation as well as judged for their HIV status, it's a very fearful thing for them to deal with. Fear of disclosure. Many are concerned that walking into, again, a clinic or facility that takes care of patients with HIV infection, particularly in some communities, and Baltimore is one of them, where People know everybody that walking in, you essentially disclosed your status to people and then it will be known in the community when you're not ready to disclose that. And there's denial. I feel great. He quote unquote never gets sick. They must have got this diagnosis wrong. I am not HIV infected. I'm fine. And some of that's denial. 
I think it's important to really talk about the logistical barriers to engaging into care and to presenting for care. So one is time. So this young man is unemployed, is looking for a job. He's trying to do things and taking care of going to the clinic when he may have all the other barriers in place in terms of stigma, disclosure, et cetera. It takes time and it's easier to not do that. He doesn't have insurance. And so this age group, many are not being seen by their pediatric providers at this point, and many have not necessarily transitioned to care to an adult provider, and many may not even be insured. And so he doesn't have insurance. He doesn't have a place to go. He doesn't know where to go. Again, another reason why he may not go. And that also ties into sort of a lack of an understanding how to navigate the health system. In the case, it was said that he was referred essentially to a health center. Well, if he called and there was a a voicemail or any kind of delay, et cetera, many youth are limited in terms of how to get around that, how to navigate that. And then it, quote, unquote, falls off the radar or they just aren't able to do it and it, again, serves as a barrier. This young man is unstably housed. Oftentimes, I think there's such a focus on homelessness. Yes, he may have a place to stay every night, but it's clear he's spending most nights at different friends' houses. So he may not come out and say he's homeless, but he actually doesn't have necessarily a steady place to go. And so there's some lack of stability that, again, presents a barrier to then pursuing care and following up. Poor health literacy, I talked about how young people are in that transition stage from their pediatric providers, their adult providers, some don't have providers at all, and not even knowing how to really navigate that health system is a huge thing. And then what I call the feeling fine phenomenon. I feel great. I must be great. Move on. And he definitely has some of that. Oftentimes for young people, and I did not necessarily highlight in this case for this young man, but there's a lot of substance abuse, whether it's marijuana, which many youth don't necessarily consider a substance, but does impact motivation and engagement to care. And a significant component of our young individuals engage in marijuana and other drugs. And so that also can serve as a barrier and maybe why he also delayed his care. And lastly, there are the mental health consequences stigma, discrimination, coming out and dealing with a lot of the issues surrounding that may lead to anxiety and depression, which have definitely been associated with decreased engagement in care and adherence to care. So again, multifactorial, some are that are elicited from the case itself and some that would need to be uncovered as the young man engages in care by case managers, social workers, and the like. Let's talk about his numbers, doctor. This patient has a CD4 count of 375. He's got a viral load of 400,000. With those numbers, does he qualify for treatment according to the current guidelines? So youth and young adults are treated according to the adult treatment guidelines, most recently updated earlier this year in May of 2014. And the trajectory of their disease is thought to more closely mirror those of adults than children or perinatally infected youth, which we'll discuss later. So he definitely meets treatment guidelines by the CD4 being less than 500 cells per millimeter cube. Of course, we should always repeat a CD4 to assure that it's actually confirmed to be that level, but should it be confirmed, he definitely meets treatment guidelines. Viral load is not what the basis of treatment is made on, though his viral load impacts what regimen you may choose. Specifically, for example, he would not be able to initiate ropivirine, which is a component of one of the single pill treatment regimens, as his viral load is greater than 100,000, where failure has been seen more frequently in the clinical studies that led to its approval. Talk to us, if you would, about medications that could be recommended for this patient. What would those medications be, and would they be different than those prescribed for older adults? 
Sure. He would qualify for most of the first-line regimens that are in the adult treatment guidelines, include protease inhibitor-based regimens, the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptor inhibitor-based regimen, as well as the integrase inhibitor-based regimens. Now, we would need to consider resistance testing very carefully in this young man, as there have been studies to show that around 10 to 18% of youth and young adults entering care already have some major drug resistance mutations. Barring no resistance, any of the first-line regimens, as I've mentioned, would be potential options, again, with the exception of real pivirane-based regimen, given his increased viral load. The actual medicines, again, would not be different than what a starter initiated for adults. However, there really does need to be more of a thought about the barrier to resistance, which would be critical as some of the regimens are not as, quote-unquote, forgiving as others, meaning if they're not taken the way they should be, they're more likely to develop resistance, and that could be problematic for someone starting so young on therapy. And particularly for youth, I think this issue is not focused on enough, but there really needs to be careful consideration of palatability, schedule, food intake, storage issues. And I say that because, number one, I'm often shocked by the number of young people, late teenagers, early 20s, that can't swallow pills. They literally cannot swallow pills. And for this young man, there are issues in terms of storage. If he is unstably housed, where will he keep his pills? Will they need to be refrigerated, not refrigerated? Has he disclosed? Will he be able to do things or put them where they need to be that will then allow him to take his medicine? So all those things need to be considered as we're determining a regimen for him. Engaging a patient like this and retaining him into care, what strategies might healthcare providers use? I think as we think about tools and that we can use in our armamentarium to engage a young man like him, I think it's really thinking about a multidisciplinary approach to him and youth like him. So one, really relying on outreach workers, particularly peers if we can, particularly peers who have some experience of either personal HIV infection or dealing with other peers with HIV infection, a strong, strong advocates and can really be helpful in engaging a young man like him. Having a case manager who helps him in terms of navigating a lot of the issues that are challenging for him from health insurance to health literacy. We've got to be creative about contacting this young man because he's not a young man that we have a landline or a telephone that we can call him. So being creative about how we contact him texting, getting all numbers and ways that we can reach him, Facebook through the personal email feature, instant messaging, and really letting him tell us the best ways that he found it's acceptable for us to reach him and using them, linking him to resources for support. So either resources that are present in clinic or thinking about what else is available in the city to be able to reach to, to link this young man to. Resources for housing. If we do all these things, but he has no place to go, the priority still for him will be where he sleeps and if he can feed himself. And so if we can link him to resources that can help him with that, that is going to increase the likelihood that he's going to engage. Encourage him to tell at least one person, a trusted friend, a family member, and even bring that person to his appointment. Getting that support has been such a key, such a key factor for many young people that they feel as if they have someone they can lean on or when they're depressed or upset, when they feel as if they are unable to go on. Having that support mechanism is important. And that's beyond the clinic staff. And then identifying and addressing mental health needs is also a critical piece for him. So again, multifactorial and multidisciplinary approach really is the best way to engage a young man into care like him. Thank you for sharing your insights, doctor. I think we've got time for one more patient, so if you would, please. So this is a case of a 20-year-old young woman with perinatally acquired HIV infection who's been recently transferred to the care of an adult HIV provider. She reports that she was diagnosed at around five years old when her mother died of pneumocystis pneumonia. She was subsequently raised by her maternal aunt. 
She's been on many medications in the past and has been responsible for taking her own medicine since she was around 10 years old, around the same time she was told that she had HIV. She's changed medicines many times, but does not remember all of the medicines' names. In her opinion, she has taken her medicines very well and has never been sick. She's on a CART regimen of darunavir, ritonavir, and the combination pill of tenofvir and tricytamine. And her most recent CD4 is around 300 cells per millimeter cube with a viral load of 12,000 copies per ml. She had special education classes in school, and though she dropped out of school in the 10th grade, she's working on obtaining her general education diploma, or GED, and is currently unemployed. She does have medical insurance, luckily. She's sexually active with males and has a total of four lifetime partners. She has one child who is HIV negative. On her physical exam, she is heavy set, and you notice that she has acanthosis nigricans, which is a hyperpigmentation often seen in the neck that can be a marker for diabetes or insulin insensitivity. Her HIV was perinatally acquired. Uh, talk to us about the epidemiology of that in the U.S. So the median age of perinatally infected individuals in the U.S. is increasing. Currently about 14 to 18 years of age in many cohorts. And we have some perinatally infected individuals that are in their 30s. So it's saying total there are about 6,000 perinatally infected individuals currently living in the U.S. Many are healthy and living completely normal lives. They're employed like this patient. They are parents. Many are married. Many are in school. Some do, however, have significant comorbidities as a result of their HIV or and a result of their therapy. So they have lipodystrophy, which is a loss of fat in certain parts of the body, a metabolic disturbance, and many have significant cognitive delay or dysfunction, as this woman may have some. Now, this patient, she's been responsible for self-administering her medications from the age of 10. How typical is that scenario? So disclosure is when someone tells someone of their status and also includes when someone is told of their own status. So it can encompass several different things. For perinatally infected children, the median age of disclosure when they are told about their infection is around 10 years of age in the U.S. and is my experience in our clinic. Some can be told at older or younger ages and that, again, is very individualized depending on the maturity of the child, depending on their cognitive capabilities, depending on the caregiver scenario, the dynamics in the family, et cetera. Now, disclosure has been shown to be a good thing. It has been shown to minimize depression, to increase adherence because kids know why they're taking what they're taking. It oftentimes improves risk-taking behaviors and can promote a better general sense of well-being. The age at which the responsibility of medication administration is transferred to the child is, again, variable depending on the family dynamics. So, because we don't always know when parents are going to do that or where caregivers are going to transfer that care. It is an important factor to assess at all visits for the young kids that we see and through teenagers and youth as it's an important source of non-adherence when that transfer is made. If all of a sudden we see the viral load increasing, we need to know how to troubleshoot that. So good question. So the provider who's assuming her care, uh, again, the first time the clinician is evaluating this patient, What's notable about her current antiretroviral treatment regimen? I think particularly as someone who's just assuming her care, the major thing is that she has detectable viremia on this regimen. So on this regimen, which technically should be a, a potent regimen, she has a viral load of 12,000 copies per ml. She has significant pretreatment, and she's able to tell you some medicines, but not able to tell you everything. So you worry that with someone who has been on so many different medicines, was there intolerance? or was there non-adherence, 
or was there the possibility of resistance that led to changing of the different regimens and, you know, potentially giving the possibility for resistance to this regimen, which is causing it to be um, biremic. So lots of concerns are raised with the current antiretroviral regimen here. You don't have all of her past records. Is that typical? We rarely get all the records, and that is something I, I often really stress when we talk to providers who are transitioning care in. If I had my wish list, I want everything that she's had before. So all prior records of her prior antiretroviral regimens, her response to those regimens, what her CD4 and viral load did, all prior genotypes, not just the current genotype, which may not show everything. We want her severity of her HIV classification, opportunistic infections. She may not be able to tell us that. So she may have felt healthy forever and never had an issue, but she may have had opportunistic infections or a sequelae of HIV, hospitalizations, adherence, mental health history, et cetera. Also, the team records to understand how she was treated, what the response was, and what else is going on with her. The reason why you need all of those things is because you need to recreate the whole picture to understand why she's in front of you today with a CD4 of quote-unquote only 300 and a viral load that's elevated. So all those things are important to evaluate moving forward. Based on what you do know about this patient, do you have enough information to recommend changing a regimen? So based on what I know, I actually can't make a recommendation just yet because I actually don't know particularly her resistance profile and what she'd been treated with before, as well as I don't know the nuances of what she would like in terms of once a day, twice a day, et cetera. So I can't actually make a recommendation right now. I think based on all those things, as well as talking with her, it would craft something that would be potent. Now, if it's all non-adherence based on her resistance, et cetera, I may keep her on what she's on or simplify or try my best to optimize what she's on. But I couldn't say exactly what I would change her to right away. Talk to us a little more, if you would, about what you see as the potential barriers to her adherence. Based on the vignette and what's obvious here, there are several things that pop out. So one, she's got some responsibilities, right? So this is a a young woman who has a child, so there's childcare, and can she get to her appointments? What times does a child have to be where they need to be and, you know, child's health, et cetera? There's cognitive limitation. So she's not going to tell me she's cognitively limited, but there's a reason why she's in special education classes and, you know, whether that's due to just her underlying protoplasm or whether that's due to HIV, et cetera, there's some cognitive limitation there. She may just be tired, and it's hard for young people to tell you that they are tired of taking medication, but there's a significant component of treatment fatigue. You know, you've been taking pills since you were 10 years old. That's 11 years of taking pills. She may simply be tired, and thinking about how to navigate that and counseling her through that will be important. She's unemployed. It's not clear from the vignette what her income is based on, whether it's you know social services or other things that are at play. But she may be somewhat limited in terms of transportation, in terms of her rent, her ways of paying for copays, et cetera. And she likely has some limited health literacy, particularly since she is not able to verbalize a lot of past regimens, et cetera. There is a sense that there may be some limited health literacy there. So just on surface, there are some barriers present. One last question on this patient, doctor. Uh, It's something you mentioned in the case scenario, that she has a marker that may indicate insulin insensitivity or potentially diabetes. Overall, what are the comorbidities she may be at risk for developing? Certainly. I think what's important for her is she has traditional risk factors. So even taking HIV out of the picture, she has traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease. She has obesity, which definitely has been linked to cardiovascular disease. And that increases her risk of hypertension. It increases her risk of diabetes. So just before you even add the HIV, now we add the HIV in. Her long-standing HIV infection and the increasingly increasing data about inflammation that comes along with HIV infection, particularly in the setting of decreased adherence, 
also increases her risk of these comorbidities. So we have obesity. We don't know for sure, but she probably has hyperlipidemia and needs to be assessed and managed. There's some premature aging that's been associated with HIV. She already has some signs of metabolic derangement with the acanthosis nigricans, which we need to assess and treat if she does have diabetes or some sugar issues with her blood sugar. It's important to address her risk factors, which we have not assessed, so we need to assess those. Does she smoke? What's her diet like? What's her exercise like? What's her family history like? Okay, and then encouraging lifestyle modification for the things that we can modify. So there are several things inherent within just her HIV diagnosis as well as some that are not, but that increase her risk of comorbidities overall. Dr. Agu, thank you for today's cases and discussion. I'd like to ask you now from a broad-based perspective what you think needs to happen to improve engagement and retention into care of these adolescents and young adults with HIV. That's a great question. I think particularly with the increasing incidence in this population, we really do need to figure out through studies the best practices in terms of where youth and young adults need to receive care and how we should be giving them that care. We need to examine initiatives to improve engagement and linkage to care, as well as those to optimize adherence to care and therapy. I think critical for this group. I think this population is an ideal target for interventions that are hopefully in the future and hopefully not in the too distant future for prevention and treatment of HIV. So I'm referring to things like uh, depot or pre-exposure prophylaxis or depot, you know, a shot for a combination antiviral therapy or vaccines to prevent or mitigate HIV infection. And I do think that we, we need, in, in this population, studies that examine the consequences of acquiring HIV in the early decades of life and potential interventions to mitigate the adverse effects, particularly inflammation and metabolic consequences that we are seeing as an outcome of long-standing infection in this population. So I think that's where I see the future for management and care of this population. Uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts, Doctor. To wrap things up, I'd like to take a moment to review what we've talked about today in light of our learning objectives. Uh, So to begin, the HIV epidemic among adolescents and young adults in the U.S. I think the important thing here is that HIV incidence is increasing in this population of youth and young adults, and particularly within young MSM, or young men who have sex with men who have the highest rates. And our second objective, the management challenges, including engagement, treatment, and retention in caring for HIV-infected adolescents and young adults. I think there's cognitive, developmental, psychosocial, and logistical issues that create major challenges to engagement, treatment, and retention for youth and young adults, and they may have significant implications for treatment and transmission. And we really, as providers for this population, need to think comprehensively about this group in order to impact their management challenges to hopefully optimize their care and outcome. And finally, the emerging data on the clinical implications of HIV infection in adolescents and young adults. Sure. I think we are increasingly becoming aware of the long-term consequence of HIV infection, particularly in youth, which include inflammation that may result in neurocognitive and cardiovascular complications later in life. I think there's a need to focus on this as we are going to need to manage and mitigate this in the future. Dr. Alice Nagu from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this EHIV Review podcast. It has truly been my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about something that is so near and dear to my heart. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ehivreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with HIV.
This activity has been developed for infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and other healthcare practitioners whose work or practice includes treating patients with HIV. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive EHIV review via email, please go to our website www.ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHAV Review is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Merck & Company, Inc., and VIIV Healthcare. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.